Feeling better? Looking better? Making life better? It's Life Tips. Life, life, life. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life Tips. Life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Life Tip Show, everyone. Byron White here with Susan Pinker. Susan, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to have you on the show today. You're the author of your second book called The Village Effect. Tell us a little bit about why you sort of decided to take on this wonderful challenge of relationships and how important they are. Well, The Village Effect, the title of the book, is a metaphor for the kind of social contact we all need to survive and to thrive as, as humans. And so, because really not all kinds of social contact are created equal. Like the problem right now is more, we're more connected than we've ever been before, but we've never been lonelier. And, and some people have even called this the age of loneliness. You know, we had the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Space Age, the Digital Age, and now we have the age of loneliness because essentially we're much less connected to people, both our intimate connections and our larger connections in the community than we've ever been before. And this is taking a toll on our health and our, on our happiness and how long we live. Tell us about some of the research you did for a remote region in Sardinia. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, this book, part of the germ for this book started when I was sitting in a dark auditorium. I'd just spoken about my first book, which is about sex differences, and I knew from my first book that there's a universal lifespan gap between men and women. Men live an average of five to seven years less, shorter lives than women do on average. And I'm sitting in this auditorium after I'd given my speech, and I heard another speaker, Michael Rose, say that there was a, one place in the world where men live as long as women. And not only do men live as lo- nearly as long as women, but it has ten times the number of centenarians as North America does. So this really piqued my curiosity. I sat up, and at the break, I went to speak to him, and I said, where is this place? And it's uh, an island off Italy, part of Italy in Sardinia. The island is Sardinia, but it's a remote area of Sardinia that's very mountainous and where the villages are quite isolated. And I decided I had to go there and find out what makes these villages tick. What is it about the culture that allows these men to live such long lives? Now, you've, you've really tapped into some developmental psychology with your, with your theory here, the whole village effect. Um, can you tell us about uh, how relationships fit with the other things that we know to want to improve our lives, like diet and exercise and medicine and, and you know, super greens and all the other fun things? Why, is, why should relationship be part of that conversation? Well, essentially because what social neuroscience is telling us and what essentially huge demographic studies are telling us is that it is the most powerful predictor of our longevity. So, for example, let me just describe one study, um, paint a picture with one study. It was done by uh, a woman named Julianne Holt-Lundstad in Brigham Young University. And what she did is essentially amass all the studies that she could find uh, that look at predictors of um, health and longevity over a seven and a half to ten year 
span. So she looked at air pollution and hypertension treatment and BMI, meaning your body mass index, how fat or lean you are, how much physical activity you have, whether you've had a flu vaccine, whether you drink or smoke, or how much you smoke, your social relationships, whether you're married or not. And all of these studies looked at these factors and then followed people over a long period of time, and meaning seven, an average of seven and a half years. And it turned out to be an absolutely enormous sample of people. And what she discovered, what really reversed my expectations. So in order of what is most predictive of how long we live, in other words, what is the one factor that we can control other than genes for how long we live? Okay, It's not pollution or drug treatment or exercise or alcohol or smoking. It's our social relationships, two different types. First, the social relationships that we have in the community, how integrated our social lives are, meaning do we get out there and join things? Do we play cards or play hockey or participate in a religious community, go to church, volunteer, that sort of thing? And also our intimate relationships, how much social support we have, meaning the people we depend on. And those two were the most predictive factors of how long we live. And so that was fascinating to me because we have not only evidence, but we have excellent evidence showing that it really matters that we get out there and interact in person. And in fact, that interaction, okay, and this study is based on 309,000 people, okay, that interaction reduced your risk of dying by half. Interesting. What is happening in our brain when we actually hug someone or high-five somebody or have lunch face-to-face -face with a friend and laugh or say I love you to somebody? What is happening in the brain that's good for everything? <laughs> right. Well, let's just clarify before I begin that we're not talking about hostile interactions, right? I mean, if you have face-to-face -face interactions with somebody you despise, it's not going to be good for your health. <laughs> but I'm talking about, you know, when we voluntarily get together with people, and it doesn't even have to be your closest friend. It could be your neighbor, or it could be somebody, you know, the shopkeeper you see once or twice a week. And what happens is that there is a cascade of neurological events. There, is, there are hormones like oxytocin and vasopressin that are released that allow you to damp down your suspicions and trust the other person. They allow you to feel good in the here and now, so endorphins are released. The same high that runners get, what they call the runner's high, these endorphins are released when you have immediate face-to-face -face contact. So you feel good not only now, but well into the future. And interestingly, the, the little kind of bursts of oxytocin that come from being together are not only linked to well-being, but to productivity in the workplace. So um, a couple of things are happening. There are hormones that make us feel good. There are, they reduce our stress. And there are neurotransmitters that allow our brains to function in a more efficient way. Because essentially, as social animals, we've evolved for face-to-face -face contact. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about the study with uh, women with breast cancer and how their circle of friends impacted their likelihood for survival. Well, 
this is a study, what's called a prospective study, meaning they take a whole population, and in this case they were nurses, and they follow them into the future through time. And what happened was in this enormous population of nurses, they looked at the nurses who had a diagnosis of breast cancer and also measured how much social contact they had. And they found that when they measured them over time, when they looked at their outcome over time, that after they had been studying them for 10 years, they discovered that the nurses that had the most integrated and widespread social networks had four times the likelihood of surviving as the ones who had sparser social networks. So actually, it didn't influence whether they got cancer or not. So let's just clarify that. In other words, your whether or not you get cancer has nothing to do with your stress levels or your social life. But once you do have that diagnosis, the kind of social life you lead does have an impact on how, that, how your tumors behave. And so in the case of these nurses, having an integrated full social life was protective. Is your contention with regards to... Uh, anti-social behavior and being too riveted to the online world, something that's destructive to us. Can you talk a little bit about, it's funny because I think of being social and a community as that key word being social, right? Whereas in fact, social is also online social as in Facebook, Twitter, and being mesmerized and being almost lonely and isolated with actual contact from people. Can you talk about this debate and what you're seeing that might be destructive with our current behaviors of online socialness? Well, what's really interesting about that is when I started writing this book and people say, oh, what are you writing about next? And I say, I'm writing about social networks. The immediate response was that I was writing about Facebook and Twitter. Uh-huh. In other words, the idea social, the word social has now morphed to mean interacting, two screens or two machines interacting, not uh-huh. two or more people interacting. And there is a fundamental difference, even though we tend to conflate the two. I think that digital technologies are fabulous for sharing information, for researching information, for arranging logistics. There's nothing that beats them but they're just not that great for true human connection and for building trust and for an enhanced human bond. So they can never really replace the real-life connections that we all crave. And so what happens online is we get the kind of feeling that we're connecting with somebody, but with none of the benefits. I think that, for example, what's great about online interaction is if you can say, like, okay, meet me in this place or this time, or that it can gather people who have like interests together and then they can make an arrangement to meet up. I think online interaction is fabulous for that. But what I think it isn't good for is it isn't good for reducing loneliness. And we know this now from research, for for example, from comparing support groups for people with illnesses. People, for example, if we go back to people with cancer, those people who participate in online support groups tend to have a much, much higher rate of depression. Now, we're not sure whether the people who are already depressed are more likely to interact online already or whether the online interaction is causing that depression. But we do know that the rates of depression in online support groups reach almost 100%, whereas the rates of depression in face-to-face support networks are much, much lower, far lower, at least half that. 
I mean, because obviously, you know, having a chronic illness like cancer is a depressing event, so it's not surprising. But if we're looking at support as a way of treating that, the online just doesn't do the trick. And there's another aspect of online interaction, which I call the rich get richer, the poor get poorer phenomenon, which is that people who are really good at getting together with people and find it pleasant and enriching use their online networks to do more of that. They use Facebook to make plans to meet up with each other. And so it just kind of, I guess, it enhances their social relationships. But there are many of us in society who are quite isolated and lonely. And for many of these people, their online connections not only don't help, they harm them because they give them the impression that they're a reasonable substitute, which they are not. Because we know from research that not only do they not improve our mood and sense of isolation, they often increase it. Hmm. One more question before a break, a quick one maybe. What are the elements of the village, if you will, that we should be trying to emulate in our own lives? What are the characteristics and elements that you have found? Well, one of them, one of the key features is kind of crafting your day so that you just run into people as a part of your day. You just are going to meet them. And the fact of the matter is that right now, much of what used to be a social event in our lives has become a solitary event. For example, shopping. Most of us used to go to stores and actually interact with people, but now we order things through our computers, right? Or buying a newspaper. Most of us read that online. Even many students go to school online, so they're no longer in a classroom with other people. So if you want to build your village, you have to think about how is my day going to look so that I actually meet with people and talk to them and see it as something that you structure in, like exercise or three meals a day. So that you know, for example, that if you're going to go to the gym at 5 o'clock on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you're also going to have a meeting with the following group at this Starbucks so many times a week. Or you're going to exercise with other people. Or instead of taking your meals by yourself, you're going to make sure that you make a plan to have meals in the company of other people. So it's something that you have to kind of build into your day with purpose now because Essentially, the places that we live are no longer built like villages with squares where people run into each other. Hmm. It's hard to imagine communities um, in our busy lifestyles that would connect us. I mean, as we, we develop deep friendships, of course, in our colleges or universities or high schools, and then we move on to graduate school or places of work, and then we move back. And our friends maybe in high school were not the friends that we have now because we've gone different courses. You know, the, the Sardinians have it a little different. You know, they, they, yeah. they, there's no question about it. But, but on this challenge of trying to build your life around, I mean, for example, do, do phone conversations count? with your village effect, or, or do you need that personal face-to-face -face connection? I think the phone conversations are definitely an improvement over no contact. Absolutely. Uh -huh. And so I, and, and, and I think that, say, Skyping is an improvement over a phone conversation, over nothing at all. I mean, I don't think it's an uh -huh. improvement over the phone because there's some immediacy lost there in Skype. But, um, you know, it's not that I'm saying that the digital technologies are worthless, not at all. And I'm not about to ditch my gadgetry. 
but that it's not a good replacement, just as a Big Mac is no replacement for your mother's lasagna or chicken soup. They're two different experiences and two different biological events, and they're good for different things. So, for example, when we talk about building a village, and I use the word village as a metaphor for the social contact we all need, right? So, for example, when we look to you know, buy a house or look for an apartment or a condo, many of us look for things like, well, you know, how close is it to the highway or how big is the garage or, or do they have enough closet space? But what we should really be looking at if we're concerned about our health and happiness is, do people talk to each other in that neighborhood? Do people walk to the store and bump into each other? How many, does it have sidewalks? Is it close to public transit where people are likely to walk down the street and go to the subway stop or the bus stop and then ha- exchange a few words and have a conversation? Because all of this is part of building the village effect. So a neighborhood where everybody jumps in their cars, opens the garage door with a remote, drives to work, then comes back home and does the same thing all over again five days a week is not really a true neighborhood or a true village in that sense. Um, so that's what I mean by looking at building social contact throughout your day and even through, for example, how you get through your work day. Um, many of us just kind of automatically shoot an email to somebody who's three or four offices away from us when we could easily get up and walk down the hall and exchange a few words face-to-face. And we know from research that that kind of social contact actually promotes productivity. Let's take a break, everyone. Jab back in just a few minutes with Susan Pinker, author of The Village Effect. Back in a minute. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, but get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals, personal, professional, PPC services. PPCProfessionals.com. Before you painstakingly create another label or drag yourself to the post office, set a course to ShipStation, your key to e-commerce shipping nirvana. Save time by easily importing orders from wherever you sell, like Amazon, eBay, and over 40 others. Save money with discounted USPS rates and a free USPS account. Automate manual tasks through bulk label and invoice printing, custom shipping rules, and much more. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get an additional 30 days free after the free 30-day trial. Go to ShipStation.com slash WebmasterRadio now. Shipping Nirvana starts here. Introducing Rumble 
the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. Through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app, we can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email sales at webmasterradio.fm today and get your message delivered now. And now back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back, everyone. Susan, oh, let me start that again. Uh, great job, by the way, Susan. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Is this what you want? Yes. I, the answers are a little long, but that's okay because they're rich. You know, um, try to, you know, try to shorter? do your best. A little, little bit shorter. And I promise okay. I'll, I'll bring amazing questions right back at you. Okay. All right, all right cool. But it, it's great. It's great. Trust me. It's fantastic. Good. Welcome back to Life of Show, everyone. Susan, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Susan, are we losing our touch when it comes to the art of being cordial with our communication in this villagey environment that you're, effect- that you're describing? Do you mean that are we becoming less polite in our online communication? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Polite is the perfect word. But, you well, know... We're all so buried and so intense as we walk down the streets, and you know my office is in the North End here in in um, in Boston, and it's and it's I do know the landlord to the building, and I know the local person, and I'm always saying hello, and you know, but but many people are buried with their heads in their phone and worried about and you know stressfully walking. I mean, this is in a city. My question is, are we losing touch with that? That that cordial communication, you know, that friendly communication and saying hello, is that becoming a, a dinosaur, if you will, in the way we go about our day? Well, I'm going to actually tell you a little story I heard yesterday over breakfast with a colleague, and it was about people being buried in their phones in public places, you know, how their, their faces are down into their phones. Mm-hmm. And she was on a museum kind of concourse, and she's, pregnant and has had some health problems and she tripped and she fell like flat on her face and she said that around her were about five or six people in their 20s and 30s who were all focused on their phones and a couple of them were filming something on their phone and even though they were aware that she'd fallen they finished their filming before they came over and said hey are you hurt can I help you and I thought wow, that's really shocking. And so 
I think a lot of us are focused. I think that the intensity of the experience of the communication that's directed only to you on your phone has drained away the impact of the general environment. So the fact that we used to say, look at and smile at people sometimes that we met as we moved through our days. Or if somebody needed assistance, if we met a pregnant or older person on the bus, we'd give up our seat because we actually made eye contact and recognized that they needed something that we could provide, whereas now nobody even looks up. Are you finding yourself, after, reading the, after writing the book, uh, witnessing scenes while like you'll be in Starbucks or in a restaurant and every single person around you will be hyper-focused on their phone. I mean, it's, have, you, have you found yourself in situations like that? And what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I, in Montreal, Montreal is a very social city, but nonetheless, it's not immune to this phenomenon. And of course, what I see in Starbucks or other coffee houses like that is that they are social places, but most people are there communing alone with their laptops. So it's better that they're there than they're alone at home by themselves on their couches, to be sure. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But it's not as good as the kind of workplaces that we used to have where there was true interaction and that some of that social interaction, of course, it could drive some of us crazy. Uh -huh. It's stress-inducing, but a lot of it, fostered creativity and new ideas. You know, people mm. would challenge you. You would discuss things. Now, essentially, your phone has little bursts of information that are targeted just for you, and your news feed is focused just on you and your interests. So actually, your empathy for people who are not you and not like you is reduced. How do you balance your life uh, you know, online versus offline, you know, you, you personally. Yeah. Well, I will say that writing this book has changed my life because when you spend four years reading these studies day after day, it can't not change your habits. So, for example, now when I look at my day, at the beginning of the day, the way I did today, and I saw that I had, for example, two radio interviews and a lot of research, and I had to write an abstract, but essentially it was a solitary day. I made sure that I had a social block in the day. I called up a colleague and said, what are you doing for lunch? And made sure that I had that in my day. It's not just fun. It is as important to your health, if not more important, than having daily exercise. So that has changed for me, whereas before I would have worked right through lunch. There's no doubt about it. Just a bowl of yogurt at my desk. That's <laughs> it. Now, you know, if I'm doing exercise, I do it with somebody else. I don't just go to the gym and exercise by myself. Um, I also am kind of much more hypersensitive to what's going on around me. So, for example, my neighbors. I mean, I was always aware they were there. But now, if I see my older neighbor on the street, I'll make sure that I get out there to have a conversation with her and find out how she's doing because she doesn't come out every day. Huh. So, I mean, it has changed me in very fundamental ways. How many real relationships do you think we need to have to be vital in our community? And what level of relationships do we need to have with people 
Well, you know, there's no magic formula because everybody is different. People are individuals, and so people who are outgoing need a much larger social network to feel happy and and to to thrive, really, whereas introverts need less social contact and they need to be much more in control of it. But everybody needs some type of social contact. I would say that what's important is to focus on not only your close contacts, the people, like the, the three people or four people who you can confide in and depend on, and you know, push, push comes to shove, they lend you 50 bucks. Those really close people, that's one place you need to focus on investing time and energy. But you also have to invest time in those middle-range relationships, meaning the people that we used to in a former life meet up with, as a matter of fact your neighbors, your colleagues, the team members if you play a sport or if you volunteer. These, what we're finding out from research is that middle layer of relationships is just as important for our health. Can we count co-workers as villagers, if you will? Absolutely, Byron. Your co-workers, I think it would depend on how much movement there is in your workplace. In other words, if people are constantly coming and going, then it's not much of a village. But <laughs> if you have a stable, in other words, you know, there's some places where people don't stay more than a few months. Yeah. But if you have a stable village of some kind, um, it's extremely powerful. And that's why it's such um, a threat to people's health to retire. Because when they retire, they've lost that whole swath of social contact at one fell swoop. Not only the sense of purpose that work gives us, but the daily social contact that's structured into our workday. So one little piece of advice I would offer is that people who are contemplating retirement start making the transition by structuring in their social life before they leave the workplace so that they know that they have some place to go at least say, three, four times a week where they're going to meet up with other people and have a conversation or have an activity together. Trust is clearly a, an important element of what you're, uh, what you're getting from a, a great, deep relationship that you have with somebody. Um, would you, A, agree with that, and B, do you really need to surround yourself with people that you can truly trust? Well, I agree that face-to-face -face interaction promotes trust and that mutual trust is the basis of a friendship or a true relationship. But when you say, do you need to surround yourself with people you can trust, I would say yes with a little qualifier, right? Because when I was talking about those close relationships, well, definitely these are people that you can lean on and trust in a very fundamental way. But that middle layer of people... You can trust them, right? You, you've gotten to know them, but they're not necessarily your bosom buddies. They're people, they're, they're weaker bonds, but they're still important to have those diverse bonds as part of your social network. And what's a really important fact that I learned and that surprised me greatly is that your relationships need face-to-face -face contact in order not to decay. So they have a short shelf life. So if you haven't seen somebody in the last 18 months to two years, it's likely your slot in his or her social network, face-to-face -face social network, has been filled with somebody else. 
And likewise, some, if somebody hasn't made the effort to see you, then you're going to fill in their particular position with someone new if you know what you're doing. Okay, because if you leave those slots empty, you're going to become more and more isolated. Susan, do you think that people in general need more people within their village that they communicate with, or do they need to be more selective with who they spend more time with in their village to reap more from that relationship? I think it depends who you're talking about. So introverts definitely are more selective about who they want to spend time with because spending time with the wrong people is painful for them. But I would say that people who are, I would say, average or extroverted get a kick out of diversity in their relationships, and that diversity uh, jumpstarts new things in them and other ideas. So I think the idea of being selective is very powerful in our individualistic society. But if we look at a, a village as a metaphor once again, in a village you can't control who your neighbors are and who's living in your village. But you all have to get along and live as a cohesive community. And I think there's a benefit to that. I think there's a way that we learn and hone our ability to empathize with other people if it's not only other people who are just like us who we interact with. So it used to be that... If your neighbor was having trouble and had fallen on hard times, if he was voted for a different political party than you or came from a different ethnic background, it didn't matter. You would pitch in and help. But right now we've become more and more like, like, those, like silos where we only interact with people who are just like us, and I think there's a danger in that. Many people are taxed with their jobs and then burdened with social media when they're away from their jobs leaving little gas in the tank, if you will, to be just plain wonderfully communicative in a village-type environment. Do you see this happening, and is this really what's going on behind the scenes, um, is just out of gas, being out of gas, because we're trying to do too much and, and, and running around. But do you think at the end of the day is your message that we need to put more gas in the tank or rearrange our schedules like you of almost forcing yourself to go out to lunch to have those face-to-face -face meetings, finding that energy reserve to do that? Tell us where you balance that. Yeah, I think that there's something called displacement, meaning that it's a simple thing that if you do a particular, if there's a particular activity in your day, like watching television or checking Facebook, it's going to push something else off your plate. And you have to decide where your priorities are. So, for example, if you've decided, you know, if you need to allot a certain amount of time to your work day, and it could be, say, eight hours of work day and one hour, one and a half hour of commute time, that doesn't leave a lot of time left over. And you have to decide what is the best way for me to spend that time in my evening or weekend. And spending it alone online, I would say the research says that this is probably not the best choice for most people. So to limit it and say this is the way a lot of us are communicating these days, so view it as my way to keep in touch with the world, but put a limit on it. So for example, you know, I love to read the paper, but I certainly don't spend four hours doing it, right? I read the paper over coffee, and after 15 minutes, that activity is over. And I think people have to look at their online, the time they spend online the same way as this is a pre my time is a pre precious resource. I could be doing this 
Or I could be interacting with my child or my wife or my best friend. So those kinds of trade-offs are things that we have to look at more seriously. How can companies implement the village effect into the workplace, Susan? There's so many interesting kind of ways to implement it that I'm seeing now and that I wrote about in the book. Essentially, a place like Google, you would think they're the last people in the world to put an emphasis on face-to-face contact, yet they put a huge emphasis on it, designing their workplace all around fostering face-to-face meetups. You cannot go from one A to B in the Googleplex without meeting somebody within about one minute or less, I think. So design the workspace so that people have to run into each other, not so that they're more isolated. That's the first thing. Secondly, you know, if managers, you want your employees to trust you, do you want to have a cohesive working group, get away from email lists and connect in person. So even at just a handshake or a fist bump or a high five or a little pat prompts oxytocin and that is linked to well-being, productivity, and that team feeling. And there's lots of research in this area now, most of it coming out of the Netherlands. So it's not that I'm saying, yes, have more boring meetings, but I am saying, yes, have activities that involve people getting together and doing things they enjoy, and they'll be more committed to the workplace and to the project that you're working on right now. Um, Look at teams as, for example, there was a great study that showed that teams that took their breaks together were 20% more productive than teams that took staggered breaks. So even something like coordinating leisure time or break time can boost productivity in the workplace. And finally, the idea that we do have a limit to the number of social contacts our brains can comprehend and maintain, and that limit is around 150. It's not the 600 or 800 or 1,000 contacts that are in our LinkedIn networks. This is a, 150 is a very important number. It's called Dunbar's number. It's the size of fighting units in the Roman era, the size of English villages in the 18th century, the current size of platoons in the armed forces. It's the average size of the Christmas card list. And it's the number of employees that can be managed without absenteeism or, or an explicit hierarchy. So the idea is more is not always better. Very interesting. Susan, it's been great having you on the show. Who do you want to get a hold of you, Susan, and how should they get a hold of you? Well, I have a website, so it's my name, susanpinker.com. And so that's easy. It has everything about the books and the ideas and the books and the reviews, and then you can get in, uh, in touch with me that way. Terrific. It's been great having you on the show, Susan. Thank you so much for being a, a fabulous guest today. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Indeed. Until next week, everybody, I hope your life's a little smarter, better, faster, and wiser, and more in tune with the village that can make you life better. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.
This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.